Hello one, hello all, to this month's Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are so excited you have decided to listen and take your seat at the global table. For our new listeners, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and your host for this podcast. As a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, we are happy to host these conversations, to share information, and have you, the listener, decide what the right next steps are. Of course, these global issues can seem daunting, but taking collective action, which starts right here, can make changes big and small. Thank you for your work as a global citizen. We, of course, cannot do this work alone, and we thank all of the amazing people who have made our programs possible. From our members and donors, to our audiences, as well as our wonderful sponsor, McLean Middleton. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Now, let's get to solving this global poverty crisis. Poverty looks like in every country means something different. To be poor in a developed country with a strong welfare state looks much different than in a developing country where the government does not function to serve its people. For example, the United States Census Bureau has determined that anyone who earns an average of $24.55 per day or less, which includes 11% of our total population, lives below the poverty line. However, in Ethiopia, the government has decided to set their metric at less than $2.04 per day, constituting poverty in their country, which covers 23% of their population. However, for this conversation, we are going to look at the global metric of absolute poverty, using the World Bank's international poverty line. One important thing to note is that this dollar amount is expressed as an international dollar, not a U.S. dollar, a won, a rupee, or any other national currency. So you might be wondering, what exactly is an international dollar? Which is why you are so lucky to have me here to explain it. An international dollar is a hypothetical currency that the World Bank creates based on the purchasing power of all local currencies, adjusted for inflation in each country. An easier way to think about it would be a global currency that, if it existed, would be able to buy the same item for the same price, no matter the local currency. So, If a loaf of bread costs one international dollar, for example, you could take that dollar and buy a loaf of bread that costs 200 rupees in India, or you could take that same international dollar and buy a loaf of bread in the US that costs $2.43. This is a way to balance differences in buying power that a person has in each country, making the comparison fairer. Okay, so in terms of international dollars, what is the international poverty line set at? In September, of 2022, the World Bank updated it to two international dollars and 15 cents, up from 190 a few years ago. Using that number, we see that 
Over 719 million people around the world live below this line. This is a reduction from the 1990 number of 1.9 billion people living below the international poverty line. However, this number comes from 2019, prior to the pandemic, which we know disproportionately hit poorer countries and the economically vulnerable. In the end, the world is not on track to reach the sustainable development goal of eliminating global poverty by 2030. Based on current projections, over half a million people will remain below the poverty line by then. So, what does this all mean? What is working? And what needs to be changed about the approach to global poverty reduction? We spoke with Mark Blumenthal, a social entrepreneur tackling the issue through a new program. At my core, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an educator, I'm an innovator, but I'm also I'm a business person. So at the end of the day, I think we really do want to focus in on sustainable approaches that are run like businesses, but have a mission for social impact, not just making money. You've got to make money, obviously, to be sustainable, but money is not going to be the driving force for successful social ventures. It will be the delivery and scaling of successful social impact that is sustainable. That's at the core of what I think has to be done. Before we dive too deep into the solutions, let's talk a little bit more about the problem and why it is something we should all be worried about. The issue of poverty is one that is not declining, it's increasing dramatically throughout the world. And certainly, I think the problem that poverty poses to the world itself is pretty significant. You'll, you'll look at nations that have large populations of poor, and you'll note that they are, without question, the ones that are most susceptible to becoming authoritarian dictatorships. There's a direct correlation between poverty and, and impacts of、uh, large populations of poverty on both democracies and nations as well as businesses and nations. And therefore, I think you know, we really need to look at what has happened, for example, in Central and Latin America to really get an understanding about what the implications are when there are so, so many、uh, folks who would be de defined as low income, and especially under $3 a day, which is extremely low income. The larger the income divides, the more at risk those nations are to, again, authoritarian dictatorships. Poster child being, for example, Venezuela, obviously rising up very quickly now is Nicaragua. And there are several other nations at risk. And it's almost like we haven't learned from the past、uh, about poverty and what happens to these countries. For longtime listeners of the podcast, you will recall the case of Venezuela, a thriving democracy and an economy primed to take the next step in the 1970s, which then fell on hard times in the 80s and 90s, leading To the rise of Hugo Chavez, the fall of democracy, and now one of the poorest countries in the world. While there is a lot of complexity on why countries eventually succumb to dictatorship, much of it can be attributed to the economic well being of a nation, particularly income inequality. In addition to the problem of rising authoritarianism for countries with high levels of poverty, there are a ton of different knock on effects that poverty brings, and I'm not talking just about the health and well being of the population. Which, of course, is very important. And the more youth you have that are employed, the more they will turn to employment, drug cartels, criminal syndicates, or if they decide that they don't want to do that, then they're going to migrate. And this is what's causing the problems on our southern borders. There's a lot of discontent with the situations in Central and Latin America. Many families do not want to raise their children in environments where there is so much risk at hand when there's so much poverty. So, that this is an ongoing problem. 
Just think about the dire situation your family must be in to undertake such a dangerous journey, with nothing more than the hope of a better life. These are not people who simply have lost a job or just think that it would be cool to go live in the U.S. or Europe, but rather people who are entirely desperate. If you want some great insights into what the lives of some of these people look like, there's a great documentary that the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire screened a few years ago called Living on a Dollar. Check it out. You won't regret it. Okay, now that we have an understanding of the statistics and a little insight into the people, let's talk about the current approaches to global poverty reduction. Well, from my perspective, we've got to start out with the largest entity in the room, which is the World Bank. That was started here in the state of New Hampshire. I think we mostly forget about that, but World Bank's mission is really a world without poverty. That's what it says it's supposed to be doing. And it has a financial investment arm called the International Finance Corporation, which is supposed to be helping to invest in these nations, certainly businesses in these nations, in order to alleviate poverty. However, this paradigm that the World Bank and other institutions that are supposed to be part of the poverty reduction industry, such as Inter-American Development Bank, the Development Finance Corporation here in the United States, all pretty much use what's called a top-down paradigm. They tend to enrich governments, and then the deals that they do tend to enrich the haves of nations with trickle-down expectations to the have-nots that are never realized. With that said, you know, if you were to, and I'm not sure if you visited the World Bank, I have, I've eaten lunch there. And let me just tell you the lunches of the World Bank are, I would say they're four season, but they're certainly close to being four season grade. And that's a problem in my book, because I, I think people who are going to be entrusted with helping to alleviate poverty should eat from their own cooking. And in my book, they should be eating meals of the poor of the world and at least one or two a week in order for them to get an understanding and upfront and personal with, with what people who are very poor have to eat every day. Uh, but that's just not the case. There's a huge disconnect here between these institutions and the populations that they're supposed to be serving, which are the extreme poor. So the World Bank, IMF, and other global poverty reduction organizations come in to work directly with governments and provide development funds, low-interest loans, education, and conditions that are designed to enable the government to grow the economy and therefore reduce poverty. Within the World Bank, you have the International Finance Corporation, which does loan directly to the private sector, but Mark still sees them as dealing in the wrong way. What the IFC did in Haiti was to actually fund uh, this company, which is called Culligan Water. Culligan Water is one of the top-notch water companies in Haiti. Now, again, bottled water, pure water is a very expensive commodity, and Culligan Water is totally unaffordable by the poor. In addition, it's owned by one of the top wealthiest families in Haiti. So what the IFC is doing is just being very risk-averse and continuing funding the haves, which continues to help to expand the income divide. This is where you get into the argument of trickle-down or bottom-up economics, and I will leave it to you to decide what works best. Although, I will posit that there are no one-size-fits-all solutions in this beautifully complex and diverse world we live in. Let's be clear, easy solutions may sound great, but rarely ever work. However, it is a huge undertaking to identify the communities that need the most help across 180 member countries work with each of these communities to identify promising projects, and then track it all. Certainly because these larger entities such as World Bank, International Finance Corporation, Development Finance Corporation, constantly say that they just don't have the bandwidth to get to the bottom of the pyramid, to me is just a huge disconnect for the missions that they're supposed to be having. 
And so, again, I stress the need here to kind of engage in this bottom-up approach that will engage communities, and more specifically, social entrepreneurs in these communities to come up with solutions to poverty reduction challenges, which I think is key to solving so many of the problems at the bottom of the pyramid. What then would Mark propose if he was magically elected as the next World Bank president? If I were to to be running the World Bank today, I would be certainly looking at how I could decentralize a very central kind of institution that is very set in its ways. To me, the World Bank is, you know, obviously focused on SMEs, small, medium enterprises uh, and the development of those enterprises. And I understand why they do that. But the problem is that they do not penetrate the bottom of the pyramid. I would have these guys start to look at what are the deals that we can do and at least set up a certain percentage of the deals that would be representative of the populations in these countries. So, for example, in Haiti, you have 90% of the population is living on under $3 a day. You really do have to have 90% of your deals focused on that population. If you're saying, well, you know, we can't really do that, we don't have the bandwidth, well, I'll I'll take 50% or even 25%. But 0% doesn't work for me. And that's exactly the problem with these institutions. Another example, since we're talking about Haiti, is the issues around food aid. Many very well-meaning organizations have been trying to help bring food aid to the people of Haiti. Important work indeed. However, many of these organizations buy food products from other countries and ship it into the communities they are trying to serve flooding the market with cheap or free products that are not helping the local economy, making it impossible for local farmers to sell their own food. Things are changing in this space as this issue has gotten more recognition and people like Mark are working to engage the bottom of the economic ladder rather than the top. The primary employer of the poor is not employment, it's self-employment. And in order for people to create their own jobs, it's a very challenging situation. And it really does speak to the problems that people have. I think that what we, you know, what's needed here is for people to look at what has not worked over the last 50 years, and certainly top-down has not worked. So to engage in a new type of paradigm, at least experiment with the engagement of a new paradigm, I think is tantamount now. And this is why it's so essential to look at the role that communities can play in this bottom-up approach. I should mention that my first trip to Haiti, I I spent some time in Jacques Mel, which is on the southern coast, and I was walking around looking at a lot of very poor communities. And I remember walking through a community that was extremely poor. People were basically living in lean-tos of plastic tents and so forth. And I remember a very elderly woman coming up and taking my hand and walking me through certain areas, saying that I was personally at risk for being in that area. And I was just amazed that this woman took that on. And I, I just want to say that that really inspired me to want to do something, to really kind of dedicate some time here to, to, to kind of focus in on nations that are at the bottom of the pyramid and starting out with Haiti. Okay, now that we better understand some of the challenges to poverty reduction and the current approaches, how about we talk about what solutions Mark sees in these spaces, working from the bottom up. The story here begins with the Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus, the pioneer of microfinance and microcredit. This is the idea that if you give entrepreneurs small loans, too small for commercial banks to traditionally lend, you will get a boom of economic activity and a high rate of repayment. I looked at these institutions, I looked at what they were doing, and I said, okay, these are top-down paradigms. I then was searching for anything that could be bottom-up. 
in terms of market creation at the bottom of the pyramid. And I did find somebody who was actually working on that, and that was Mohammed Yunus. And I volunteered with his organizations for a few years. And I love the idea of microcredit because it was market creating at the bottom of the pyramid. However, the limitations of microcredit pretty much is that it leaves it up to the individual to come up with their own ideas for a business. So if you're born very poor in Haiti or Guatemala or Ethiopia, you're pretty much limited in your imagination to what you see around you. And what you see around you tends to be a lot of little retail stands, all selling the same thing, or a cow or a sewing machine. So when you go get a microcredit loan, it tends to be for another little retail stand, a cow or a sewing machine. Conceptually, the idea then is the flip side of that would be what we call micro-franchising, the idea of coming in with an innovative prepackaged business that can create jobs for unemployed youth that can deliver affordable social impact. That's the approach that I think is, is most beneficial here. We really do need to focus in on how do we facilitate the ideation of these solutions to poverty reduction challenges. And for me, you know, I have a lot of faith in kids I mean, in this next generation. I, I do think you can get them out of their element. You can get them to kind of freely think and give them aha moments, as I would call them, where somebody is is obviously living in poverty. There are definitely, without question, sometimes a person will say, you know, I could do this a little bit better if I did this as opposed to that. But they just don't have any capital to to, to bring that to fruition. And they certainly don't have the know-how to do that. So this is why we are focused on engaging with uh, university students. Well, people all over the world coming from different backgrounds, experiences, both lived and learned, can create amazing things. It is indisputable that education plays a key role in fostering this creativity, as does the space to think creatively. This is one of the challenges Mark is looking to overcome in terms of building a pipeline in low-income communities to create solutions for themselves. When we started looking at social entrepreneurship, we realized that uh, whereas many universities offer entrepreneurship training, less than 5% offer social entrepreneurship training. And this is a real problem because if you want to create a pipeline for social ventures, solutions to poverty reduction challenges, you really do need to introduce more social entrepreneurship training to universities. So we started to work on a the delivery of, of social entrepreneurship into universities, and we field tested this program in Costa Rica. Uh, last year, we ran a pilot of this. Uh, it's called EPIC, the Empire Innovation Challenge. And what we did is to engage three universities in Costa Rica and student teams within those universities. These are students that we identified who had real good potential to be social entrepreneurs. And we engaged them in social entrepreneurship training and then facilitated, helped to facilitate their development of social venture solutions to power reduction challenges. Once they fully developed those social ventures, we then put them through a competition that was televised nationally during prime time by one of the major networks in Costa Rica. And the winner of that competition received funding or investment money to do a commercial proof of concept. If that commercial proof of concept is proven to be successful, we will then add on investment funding in order to help scale that utilizing social franchising. Hold on now. This idea of social franchising was new to me. This is a a fairly new model that might have its roots going back a few years. But uh, nevertheless, you look at franchising, you obviously can see a business model that does a few things. Number one, it maintains a quality control throughout the supply chain so that every unit that is set up, uh, whether it be an individual or a company store, in a sense, would have the same kind of quality going forward in terms of their delivery of service and product. The same thing is true for a social franchise. However, a social franchise is obviously focused on delivering social impact first and foremost. 
I want to back that up a little bit in terms of the difference between an entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur, if I may. An entrepreneur, and I've been both in my life, as an entrepreneur, my major driving force was making money and providing return on investment to my investors. As a social entrepreneur, my major objective is to provide social impact and do so sustainably. So if you look at the parallel between those two kinds of approaches, you can say the same thing when you talk about franchising versus social franchising. Social franchising basically uses the uh, the franchise model, but it is very much focused on delivering sustainable social impact through a franchising uh, business approach. The other thing I like about social franchising, by the way, is that in addition to wanting to lift livelihoods when you're delivering social impact and lift Uh, wages, you also want to do something else that most of these programs don't don't really look at, which is to to try to share equity. Equity sharing is an an incredibly important component of helping to lift livelihoods because people at the bottom pyramid don't have equity. They don't have a share in the bigger rock, so to speak. And so we're very much focused on utilizing social franchising as both a way to deliver uh, and scale, rapidly scale things that work that deliver social impact, but also to help share equity. It is good to learn about the theory behind something, but real-world examples are always more instructive. Fortunately, Mark has successfully piloted some in the communities he's looking to serve. Now, again, when we talked about that original venture that we started back in 2017, just like what we do with Epic, what we did is we took on a challenge, and that was a challenge of food insecurity. And what we focused on was ideating a social venture solution to that food insecurity challenge. And this is where, again, you infuse in technology innovation. So with Haiti, we took on that challenge of food insecurity, and we ideated a solution for the problems caused by food insecurity, which I mentioned is vitamin deficiency. And by the way, vitamin deficiency causes poor immune systems, which result in susceptibility to disease. And for kids, it means they can't focus in school. So the challenge, and this is exactly the same thing that we put forth to students, is how do you create a social venture that can employ unemployed youth to deliver affordable social impact, which in this case is vitamization, at an affordable price to low-income communities? And the answer for us was a shaved ice cone with a vitamized topping. In Haiti, this product is called Presco. So they they do have this product in Haiti. The problem is that the ice that they use is not clean. That is, the water is not clean. And the toppings are homemade and not very good for you whatsoever. And then they use a plastic cup to, uh, to actually serve this product. So for us, it was a question of, okay, how do you how do you put together a product that, number one, can deliver clean water ice, shaved ice in this case, with a vitamized topping that hides the vitamin taste. So one of the products that we, one of the vitamins that we use is iron. And obviously you can taste iron, but there's a number of other vitamins that we put into that mix. And by the way, the vitamins that we selected were uh, meeting the vitamin deficiency needs of the local Haitian population. One of the big problems for Haitian women and girls uh, is obviously iron deficiency. So this is why we wanted to infuse iron. Uh, we worked with a partner uh, to help uh, develop that topping to cover that vitamized taste. And we were able to do a commercial proof of concept. When that commercial proof of concept was completed and we were looking for funding, which obviously brought us in, in, in touch with the International Finance Corporation. And we did have visits by staff. Uh, they showed up very well dressed, three of them. And uh, they were taken around in a very fancy car. <laughs> when they came to visit our office, which, which we appreciated, we did go over what our uh, mission was, which was to create jobs for unemployed youth to deliver affordable social impact for low-income communities, which translated for us 
to bringing vitamization to help to counter the impacts of food insecurity because food insecurity begets vitamin deficiency. Uh, it turned out that even though we made a very strong case for what we were doing, we did have a commercial proof of concept to, to show them, and we did have a set of excels that showed a, a, uh, an ability to be sustainable. When you're dealing with products that are 20 to 25 cents, which is what the shaved ice cone costs, the ability to get a sustainable excel takes about seven to 10 years. And most of the investors want to see uh, you know, three to four year uh, return on investment and certain multiples. That's just not going to happen when it comes to a social venture that you're trying to start at the bottom of the pyramid. Things were going well until the societal problems became untenable to continue the work in that country. Shortly thereafter, Haiti started falling apart with civil disobedience, riots, kidnappings, and everything else. We had to shelve the project. However, the project was deemed viable enough to attract outside funding and win awards, as shown in 2019 by Epic winning the UNH Social Innovation Challenge. In addition, Mark and his team have started working in other countries to bring this model to fruition. Another problem they have worked to solve in countries across Central and Latin America is that of refrigeration. One of the major problems for the poor is that they don't have refrigeration. So if you look at the fact that 60 to 7 percent of the population of Latin and Central America are living under the poverty line, then you're looking at a large percentage of that population that does not have refrigeration. And when you're looking at that, then you have to look at who does that impact most. And it turns out that it impacts women the most because they have to get up every day, take a little a ride in a taxi, go get to a, a place that they can buy their vegetables or food for that dinner that evening. And they have to pay more money for smaller lots of food proportionally because they don't have refrigeration. So they got to buy a smaller lot. They charge more for that. They bring it home. They cook it. And uh, the problem is that they have waste. It's very hot, humid climates. They're going to have to throw that out because it will not survive for more than 12 hours. So then the question is, okay, how do you create technology that could deliver refrigeration to low-income populations? And since we were shaved ice cone, we were in the ice block business, we actually started working on a technology that uh, was very simple. In fact, we worked with Northeastern University, uh, they were engaged with us, to actually develop a refrigerator for the poor. And this actually uh, kind of look, if you look back at refrigeration in the 1900s, what we did is took an ice block and we actually looked at taking styrofoam from the streets, uh, which are tons on the street, and recycling it and compressing it and using it as insulation with sheet metal. Uh, and then taking an ice block and putting it into this box. And then as the ice melts, we collect that water so that uh, we have a spigot in the ice box so people can then have fresh drinking water. And the configuration of that with technology in, in terms of what uh, Northeast and the tests that they ran, we were able to get three to four days of refrigeration out of one ice block, not to mention the clean drinking water. And when you look at what these populations need, they need refrigeration and they need clean drinking water. Clean drinking water is a commodity that they just don't have. And in Haiti, it's a real problem. So, you know, the ability to come up with these technology solutions that can help lift livelihoods, deliver social impact and be sustainable is, again, I think a real need for entities like the World Bank, Inter-American Development Bank and others to really focus in on. However, again, one of the challenges is ensuring that these are sustainable solutions that allow for economic growth in a way that makes sense for the local community they are intended to serve. Of course, with enough money, tens of thousands of electric refrigerators could be donated to these people and we could all walk away thinking the problem is solved. However, with a lack of electricity or at least reliable access, this is not the solution that is needed. In addition, flooding the market with free or cheap goods destroys any opportunities for local economies to develop and flourish. 
So for us, a social venture has got to be something that can be situated in the local community that can engage youth in jobs to deliver social impact. And that the technology can be imported, but it has to be a technology, if possible, that can be built and constructed within that nation. Now, again, in Haiti, you, you obviously have to import sheet metal, but you can find the insulation, which is styrofoam on the streets. And of course, the labor there is very reasonable so that you're able to put together these boxes, which we're holding our shaved ice and our, our ice blocks. But in the case of refrigeration, can, we can manufacture these for under 50 bucks uh, for refrigeration. And that's an affordable price when you're bringing it to uh, very low income households. And again, the impact for that is huge. Right? We can deliver ice blocks to homes. And we, by the way, we also engineered what's called a bike, which is a three-wheel vehicle, uh, bicycle. It was able to hold ice blocks in the back and then deliver these uh, products to retailers in free market sectors, schools, very poor housing areas where we identified a very poor woman who had to stay at home because she had kids in the back room. We were able to uh, identify these people, identify foot traffic in front of her location and set her up as a micro franchisee, which is, again, a social franchise, but it's a one person franchise. So we call it a micro franchise. And we were able to, again, want to look at this as a sustainable project that both sides of the coin in terms of both the customer and the employee are local. And then the technology that you bring in hopefully is manufactured, at least part of it, if not all of it, within the nation itself. This also brings me to the question of other social ventures, mainly located in developed economies where they donate one of their products to a low-income community for everyone you buy, or all the clothing donated by the major sports leagues for all the playoffs teams that didn't win. Does this help more than it hurts? At the end of the day, I understand, and I'm not going to be negative about anything that can help folks. I do like the idea of teaching people how to fish rather than giving them a fish. And I know the idea of buy a shoe here and then give away free shoes is a really nice opportunity for folks But the question is, what happens when those shoes are not delivered anymore? Have we created sustainability? Uh, No. I can't say, again, I'm I'm a fan of that model, but I don't want to put the model down because if it's doing something that's positive, I'm in all favor of it. For local solutions to local problems, you need to engage the local community. As we discussed earlier, this requires a pipeline of social entrepreneurs who are able to take on the challenges and create solutions. What are the traits needed to be successful here? Certainly, you've got to have people that are motivated and passionate about whatever their idea is, Uh, because that that really does bring along other folks. If you've got an idea, you're pushing it, you're persistent, um, you have that quality to engage other people, that's leadership, but it's more than leadership, it's entrepreneurship. The difference is that the distinction between, again, the social approach versus the commercial approach is that as a social entrepreneur, it it really means that you want to make a living, but that's not what you're focused on. I mean, you're not focused on all that money that you can make and the more money you can make and the Lamborghini or the Rolex watch. You're really focused on trying to turn the planet around a little bit here and bring about a social impact. And given all the problems now that this planet has in so many different directions, I think it behooves us to really engage this population of kids who are really aware of the problems. And there are so many of them that say, okay, money is not everything to me. I really want to do something that changes this planet. And with that said, I think there's a lot of opportunity here for kids to engage, and we want to give them the platform to be able to do that. With all that we have outlined, particularly that the world is not on track to meet its goal of eliminating poverty by 2030, there is a lot to darken the horizons, as well as a lot to give us all hope. 
Where does Mark stand on the outlook for the future? I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't optimistic about the future. Uh, needless to say, there are a lot of headwinds. I'm a sailor at heart, by the way. A lot of headwinds that you know constantly put me in doubt about that future. But uh, my cup is still half full. I believe in this next generation. And I believe in the fact that humanity has to be its own savior for itself. Because without that, there's no way we're going to succeed. And given the, the problems of poverty and the impacts of poverty have, in terms of climate change, in terms of threats to democracies, of threats to business, I think that we've got to really focus in on SDG number one. We can all do our part to help move the world closer to one free of poverty. Of course, there is a wide range of ways to get involved and leave your impact on the world. Some steps are quite easy, sharing this podcast for one, while others take more time and resources, such as supporting great organizations like Epic and everything in between. The world is full of amazing people with amazing ideas who simply need a chance. I invite you to help support them in any way you can and open space for creative solutions to flourish and expand. This has been The Global and the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Thank you so much for taking the time to begin your journey on the path towards a world free of poverty, as understanding the issues is the first step on the road to a solution. We hope you will talk about what you have heard here today, will create your own solutions, big or small, and share your thinking with your own global communities. You never know where one conversation will lead. As always, Tim Horgan is your host, producer, director, audio engineer, fact checker, creative director, and anything else you can think of when it comes to making this podcast happen. Our theme music is admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Found My Way by Audio Rise Out. Until next month. <laughs>